the Bad Patient. I'm Robin Donovan. I'm Laura Marker. And we are two non-medical, non-experts sifting through this week's health news. Every week, Laura surprises me with four stories from current events. Ready to open your email? Uh, yeah. Okay, here we go. Ah, Laura, you didn't pick the story that I thought you were going to pick, which is good because I can have it be my health fascination this week, but I can't believe you didn't pick it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I know the point of this is that you're the normal person who's interested in what normal people (laughs) are interested in, but I want you to know that, like, okay, you got, I can see there's a breast cancer story in here, but there was huge news in the breast cancer community this week, and I can't believe that we're not talking about it until I force us to talk about it at the end. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) This is disappointing. Wait, Laura, before we get started, I think we should congratulate you because you had some really big news this week. Yeah, I got admitted into a doctoral program uh, for organizational studies. Question. Question. Answer. When you are Dr. Marker, are we still going to do the podcast? Because if one yes, of us is it will be very confusing, doctor, it will be. Yeah, but not not that kind of doctor. Will you be giving us medical <laughs> advice? Will the quality of the news stories improve? What will change? What can we expect? What can we expect? Uh, it'll be the same terrible news stories. Uh, it'll be the same terrible uh, analysis, and you'll still be the expert of the two of us. <laughs> and you will have developed specialized knowledge in a subject so deep and so narrow that like we won't even be able to understand you anymore yes that may be true but i i doubt it (laughs) all right laura well congratulations and let's get started with the first story that you picked that wasn't the huge breast cancer news that i'm going to share at the end of the episode what what was the first story that you thought was more important than me (laughs) and my interests Oh, Robin, I think we should tell our podcast listeners the words that you read, but oh! commented upon, but did not share. So sorry. So sorry. What are this our topics this are week? Re- <laughs> <laughs> this week's words are research gap, kids and cancer, late start, and Xmas Eve heart attack. I think that's pronounced Christmas, Dr. Marker. Maybe once you have your doctorate, you'll know that. I refuse. <laughs> this is also confusing. See, you get admitted into your program. We start doing things differently. All right. First story. Robin, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I'm freaking out. <laughs> um. So our first story comes from National Public Radio, and it's talking about the research uh, gaps leave doctors guessing about treatments for a patient Pregnant women. Oh. Patient women. <laughs> patient. Pregnant women usually... Okay. Wait, can I guess what this is about before we before you even yeah. talk? Okay, what I'm guessing is they're going to talk about how we can't do much research on pharmaceuticals with pregnant women because there's no ethical way to test on an, a woman who is with child. And so then when the women like have to have medication, we have no idea how much medication is safe. How'd I do? Right. So, yeah. So... It's talking about the fact that, like, women have pre-existing conditions even before they get pregnant, and things can happen because they're pregnant, um, and we don't really know how that impacts them. And it's talking about how um, none of the practices are um, have been approved by the FDA because having studies that include pregnant women and other vulnerable populations is a good way to not get your study approved. 
<laughs> um, but the irony comes in because researchers um, are hardly ever permitted to conduct trials on pregnant women. We end up experimenting on pregnant women all the time. Oh. Because we haven't accumulated a solid fund of evidence, we just stick with old standards or we introduce new things without doing trials on them. So, like, ethically, yes, it doesn't make sense to do trials on women, but we're still giving women these drugs and we don't know the impact. Yeah. And the other thing the story says is that they mention that bed rest is not recommended and they're citing... Uh, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists saying that there's no evidence it helps pregnant women. While you were talking and I should have been listening, I clicked through on that link to another story that's called Rethinking Bed Rest for Pregnancy. And this is shocking to me, but they have an OBGYN quoted as saying, the bottom line is that there's never been any proven benefit of bed rest. A 2013 review of scientific research on bed rest as it relates to a variety of conditions, the story says, from early contractions to high blood pressure to carrying twins found no benefit. I mean... But I feel like women are put on bed rest all the fucking all time. All the time. All the time. I feel I feel like I hear it so, so commonly. Like, I, I want to say maybe 10% of my friends who have been pregnant have had to do something. Uh... Yeah, this article is making what I think is a really good point, which is that, like, women who are pregnant are not just women who are pregnant in the same way that, like, like children are not, are not just small adults. There's a whole new mm-hmm. universe. Okay. So the question is, what do we do about all this? So um, there was a federal task force that um, in, created in 2016 uh, by the 21st Century Cures Act um, that studies gaps in health knowledges about pregnancy. Pregnant women and lactating women. The group issued a 388-page report in September that recommends that women be routinely included in research studies, that the government devote time and money to study existing drugs in pregnant women, and that the government develop new drugs to treat problems related to pregnancy and breastfeeding. Oh, and that link in the story takes you to the whole article. The whole... It's not an article. The whole 388 pages from... The Department of Health and Human Services, which was just released in September. So this is like relatively new information. I mean, as far as the government's concerned, this is like brand new. It's only a few months old. And so there are doctors who prescribe drugs and they've, you know, been shown to be safe. But um, few studies compare drugs with a placebo in pregnant women, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, the gold standard. Right. And few studies show how medications react differently after a woman becomes pregnant. Yeah. I think I think what you said before is so is so valid and interesting that like there's no way of actually avoiding testing on pregnant women. We're either going to do it through a sanctioned trial or we are going to do it informally in doctors offices when someone has crazy high blood pressure or a psychological ailment that requires medication for the person to, you know, maintain their stability and sanity. Mm-hmm. There is no way. There is no way to not experiment on women who are pregnant. See? Yeah, we're either doing it in a formal study, or we're just doing it arbitrarily, we're just without guessing. being able to verify the results. I, and I'm still like, I'm stuck on this bed rest thing too. Like seriously? So we're telling women like, okay, you're done working. Da 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 da. I mean, I like to think that 
we're following these new recommendations. But I don't know, like, if you know this, but the implementation of new recommendations from these various organizations is sometimes spotty and it takes a while to kind of go through in the sense that like some people are not going to do it. Like some physicians are not going to do it just because they don't like they've always been doing it a different way. And some people might not agree or like the various professional groups don't always agree. So then you get like these questions of what should we do? It's like the CDC and the WHO not agreeing on Tamiflu. So it's like you almost can't fault a physician for prescribing it or not prescribing it because there's no there's no consensus. Um, And delightfully, even when there is a consensus, sometimes people just don't want to do it or whatever Ugh. right they just it's so frustrating education but if that's not the subject that you got your continuous education in then you're not gonna continuously educate you know yeah of. although i th- i think like things like if you're an OBGYN and they and like they come out with new guidelines like one of the major like acog if you're an OBGYN or there's a what is it nspstf which is the I don't even know. I forget. It's like a governmental agency or something that puts out these recommendations. I mean, I think those are usually like you would hear about it. Like it would be like like something really, really basic and not something you could like miss. But I don't know. I mean, maybe your point is actually valid because it seems like some doctors are missing it, especially like, yeah, I, I feel like the OBGYN community for some reason on some of this, the things lately where they've said that women don't need certain screenings like pap smears. I think it was every year, then every three years. And I think now if you haven't had an abnormal one, it's like every five years. But I just feel like doctors are hesitant to screen less sometimes. Like it's hard to convince people Mm -hmm. that screening less is for the best. Right. That's a good slogan. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to convince people that screening less is for the best. Yeah, screening less is the best is for the best. You know, this could be a great store a great segue into the story that I had hoped you had chosen, but you didn't choose it, so we have to talk about it at the end. But I'm just I'm just saying when we do talk we can, about it, you're gonna realize we can talk no. about it now, Robin. No Robin Robin, what's your current medical fascination? Oh my gosh, Laura, I'm so glad you asked. Okay. So this week the <laughs> <laughs> in Canada, I can't remember the name of their like governmental agency that does the screening recommendations but they changed they changed the breast cancer screening guidelines in canada especially for women under 50 so typically like um depending on who you ask like at 50 there's some kind of usual like get a mammogram and then 40 to 49 is kind of questionable so Mm -hmm. there was supposedly like a ton of false positives in younger women. Like, like I think this one article is saying for every thousand women screened in their forties, there was 294 false positives. And then of those Mm. 43 unnecessary biopsies. So it's just a lot. And then there's like, there, there's also a risk of like overdiagnosis over treatment. And then with treatment, there's potential complications from radiation, from chemotherapy, from surgeries. And then there's just like psychological stress from the whole thing, which I think sometimes we downplay more than we should. So, um, this, this Canadian task force actually recommended against screening for women in their forties, unless, unless a woman feels that like, for her in particular, like it has to be basically they're saying, Hey, make this an individual. 
yeah, kind of a by request thing. If you feel like for you, the potential harms are outweighed by the benefits, whatever. Um, so yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm in a weird position of, of like, I'm not anti mammography, but I'm starting to feel a little more skeptical because I mean, I, I feel like when you and I were like in high school is when we started the whole like pink washing and like the trucks driving around, like the mobile mammogram vans and all this stuff that we kept telling women, like, if you get a mammogram every single year, like we're going to prevent cancer and like we can beat this and all this stuff. And now it's like we're realizing that like we might do more harm to you if you get screened more often. It's not like again, like it's hard to convince people, but sometimes less screening is, is, is best. So yeah. And then I think it's also like women in their forties and I'm looking at an article from the star, which is a Toronto newspaper. And they reported that only one breast cancer death is prevented for every 1700 women who have gotten a mammogram in their forties. So it's like a third of how effective it is for women like 70, 74. And then I think they're, they're saying every two to three years for women 50 to 74, which fits somewhat in with what the US recommendations are. But it's also important to know, and if I can find the CDC chart, I will put it in the show notes. Um, I think it's the CDC that went through and compiled the recommendations from like the seven or eight different professional groups in the US and just said like, by decade, like if you're in your 40s, this is what the American College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists says. This is what um, NSPFTF says, you know, and, and went through because I don't even know if people know this, like there's the Academy of Family Physicians or there's some kind of like internal medicine group. So there's like seven-ish different professional groups that all have a slightly different recommendation. And then you're going to go to your individual OBGYN, who's going to have his or her own or their own interpretation of those seven groups of guidelines. So I just think, I wish we could blast this this information out to women everywhere. Because then outside the US, of course, every country has their own set of professional groups with their own set of recommendations. So it's like, it's not, there's no consensus. And, and of course, unfortunately, most of the recommendations can't really take into account all the vicissitudes of experience. Like, well, what if you had a female relative with breast cancer? Like, there's there's just not enough data for them to make like a dichotomous key of what you should do. So basically, if you have a family history, all the recommendations are become less applicable and there's less information for you. And so, I don't know. But I think this is big news because of, they're basically, this whole country is saying, eh, women in their 40s, we would default to not doing it that so that's big news it's awesome. boom mic drop i'm very excited it would have been better if they had come out with this news during breast cancer awareness month but to be fair that's a u.s thing and this is a canadian thing but i'm just saying as far as timeliness goes for this podcast canada get with the program i think they'll listen to us right absolutely yeah okay yeah so i am yeah i'm just like so interested to see where all that goes you ready for the next article then? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes. So the next article comes from Vox, and it's having kids leads to a small but significant increased risk of breast cancer. Okay. Yeah, I was glad you chose this one. And <laughs> I did see this in the news this week. And I think this is very confusing because in the past, they told us that having kids decreased the risk of breast cancer. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Yes. 
Absolutely. Researchers thought that being a mom protected against breast cancer. That's true, but only 20 years after childbirth. So having kids reduces your risk for breast cancer for the time period in which women typically get breast cancer, which is later in life after 50. But in that time between having the kid and getting to 50, it increases your chances slightly. So instead (laughs) of um, moms 41 to 50 have a 2.2% risk of development cancer, well, women of that age who didn't have kids have a 1.9 risk. Oh. So it's uh, new findings in the review of 15 studies from three continents of the relationship between breast cancer and child push, childbirth published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. It's not the first paper to come to this conclusion, but it's certainly the biggest and one that clarifies a little appreciated breast cancer risk faster. Um, mm. So there are, we know that things increase um your chance of uh, women who smoke and the BRCA1 and mm-hmm. BRCA2 gene mutations. Mm-hmm. Um, but also women who have recently had a child are a higher risk group as well. Yeah, did but we talk about the story? Years, and then it normalizes. Ah, did we talk about the story last year or last week with the, was that, was that us when we talked about like, women and gene mutations outside of the BRCA genes and how they're like missing a chunk of people or is that I just read that somewhere else okay so they're they just did some study somewhere where they found that like the genetic screening qualifications are kind of wonky and basically I think it was like 38% of women who should be genetically screened don't qualify under typical insurance guidelines in the U.S. for genetic screening because we're kind of like not asking sophisticated enough questions and we're only taking into account like these two things. But there's other factors or something like that that we now know about and could could tell through genetic screening, but it's like we're lagging behind. So there's this group of women who may not have this uh the BRCA mutation, but might have, I think, a different mutation, and we're missing them. So that was like mm. breast cancer has been on the brain this week. Yeah, sounds like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so... um they're not really sure why this change occurs, but they think it might have to do with the hormones that um, are produced when um, you're pregnant and the rapid forming and um, replication of um, breast cells um, over that time period oh. may may increase it. That makes sense. And then maybe it goes for like those decades afterward because it, you know, maybe some of the cancers are slow growing or something. But women, it says women who are pregnant who have been pregnant and breastfed have fewer periods and therefore produce fewer cancer-inducing hormones. This may be why lifetime breast cancer risk generally declines with every woman a child has. With every child a woman has. (laughs) Whoops. So the risk peaks after five years and declines gradually um, for about 20 years. And then then you get the benefit of it. Mm. And it says women, the age 60 is the most common age for breast cancer? I had no idea. For some reason, I was thinking younger. I guess well, that's not. why we start screening at 50. So they're saying overall... It ends with, right now, health groups offer different advice of when women should start annual screenings. Oh my <laughs> God, do they ever. Oh, and they mentioned the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So yeah, I got it right. USPSTF. Yes. I like them. And I like ACOG, but I mean... I think USPSTF is a little more neutral because some of these groups like have mm. their own um, 
like axe to grind or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. Like that they have their slanter bias. Yeah. I still okay. I still want us to somehow like right size women's perception of how at risk they are. Although I feel like I feel like this one in eight statistic that's in this article is in so many articles and I feel like so many women have heard it, but I keep also seeing mentions that women are overestimating their risk. Also, like I wonder if all these false positives in the mammograms are those counting as a diagnosis? There should be we we need like a hotline, like a bad patient hotline we can call up and ask these important <laughs> questions. Be like, listen, we're reading Absolutely. this article. We have some in-depth questions here. We'd like to know, like, what happens? You diagnose someone and then she goes and gets a biopsy and they're like, Oh, whoops. Like that was actually like I don't know. I don't I don't know what feel looks like a tumor and feels like a tumor but isn't a tumor. But um that's something else, you know. This is a mess. I don't know. This to me is like interesting, but not super interesting because like none of us are going to have kids or not have kids because of breast cancer anyway. Right. All right. Next. <laughs> <laughs> so this one comes from CBS News and it's Seattle High School finds later start time improves its academic performance. So you know how obsessed I am about sleep and your sleep. Yeah. Um, so this is an experiment kind of done in Seattle, where they uh, changed the start time from, to 8.45 instead of 7.50 um, and surveyed, watched 170 students who took part in the survey. And they found that students uh, who slept long slept longer and their academic performance approved if they had a later start time. Um, okay. So on average, uh, the students got an extra 34 minutes uh, on school nights and their grades improved an average of 4.5%. Um, and anecdotally, it says I've seen fewer tardies and absences from uh, first period from a teacher who worked with the researchers to see um, <coughs> their uh, effects. And then it cites the CDC estimates that only three out of five high school students get the recommended eight to 10 hours a night. Only 15% mm -hmm. of high schools follow the Academy uh, American Academy of Pe Pediatrics advice to start at 8.30 or later. Yeah, we used to start high school did... Yeah, at 7. Um, we had, like, well, no, I think we had like a jazz band practice two days a week that started at 7 a.m. And then I want to say 8 o'clock or 8.15 was like when things started, but... Yeah, I feel like in high school I used to typically get up around 6.30. Yeah. I'm pretty sure my school started at 7.20. Oh, God. Like the whole school started at 7.20? Yeah. So I was That's not in extracurriculars like that. <laughs> but we were done by like 2.15. Yeah, but that just makes it harder on the parents then. Yeah. I've, I feel like we've got to like, like, let's figure something out so people don't have to put their kids in daycare for 90 minutes a day or something, you know? Like, it feels like between workplaces and schools, there there must be a better way than to be like, okay, the parents are going to work from 8 to 5, and the the kids are going to go to school from 8.30 to 2.15, thereby basically making it impossible to be a parent. Like, you know, there's no, there's no good way of doing it. I mean, I was in high school, so, like, I was home alone. I didn't yeah. need a parental unit. Well, but maybe it would be like, nice. I was like, I was 13. And I only locked myself out of the house like five times. <laughs> I don't but think I my brother was able to and break I. In. Yeah, 
I don't know. It just seems dumb. Like, I think maybe we should shorten the workday slightly and then, like, extend the school day slightly and then just have it be four days a week of school and work. And Friday is your day to catch up on life and then you have the weekend. I feel like I just solved the problems. Yeah. We're going to work less each day and have Fridays off? Can you be my boss? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think studies have shown that, like, there's... There's something about, like, after 40 hours a week, there's this huge decline in performance. And then after 50, it's almost like leveling out. So basically, working 45 hours and working 55 hours is kind of, is, is about the same. Or there's something like that, you know, where it's like, you can be at the office for another 10 hours, but you're not going to accomplish anymore. It's almost like you need that sense of urgency of leaving. So. I think that in France, it's it's like a 36-hour work week or something, right? So, Oui, oui. <laughs> you know what else is interesting yeah. is they, so, used, they used wrist monitors to measure how long these groups of students were sleeping. But there was a study of, of um, sleep apps and different monitoring systems that found that they're not all that accurate. So another interesting wrinkle in this story is that, I mean, I believe them that that when they slept longer, they did better. And certainly if you're using the same wrist monitor for both, for both groups, then it like, if it's off, it almost doesn't matter, but it's just kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not, they're not that good at picking up when you're actually asleep. Cause if you're just lying, they're emotionless. They're just counting it as sleep, but like you might just be lying there very still wide awake. Well, I know I mean, this part of it is too, is that teenagers aren't getting enough recommended. So. Yeah. But then the, challenge is if school starts later then like extracurriculars can end in the dark especially during like winter months you know mm-hmm. so it's like yeah. that trade-off too just one more reason to get rid of daylight savings time absolutely i hate that nonsense it doesn't make any sense anymore we live in 2018 soon to be 2019 yeah exactly get rid of it we're done it. nobody got time for that all right <laughs> exactly. you ready for our last article yes um, so it's from the Miami Herald and it's your risk of heart attack is greatest on specific time on at this specific time on Christmas Eve study says. Mm-hmm. So Christmas Eve at around 10 p.m. in the following two days is the peak time in which you're most likely to have a heart attack. And it's based on a study published in the British Medical Journal um, and it spikes during most holidays. Um, and, uh, it is a massive trove of data in the study. It details more than 280,000 heart attacks in Sweden over 16 years. So it's not Mm. just a sample. It's every heart attack for 16 years and the whole country is in it. It's reality is what. Wow. uh, So they found a few patterns when the heart attacks are most likely. Um, there's a slightly higher risk before 8 a.m. or more. Generally, on Mondays, <laughs> there that are higher risks on New Year's Day and midsummer holidays. Researchers said previous research showed um, some increased risks surrounding major ho- major sporting events and during Islamic holidays in certain regions. Um, but they found that Christmas Eve um, was where your chances of having a heart attack shot up by 37%. Um, and the risk was especially great for those with diabetes or a history of heart disease. So hmm. they're not sure why, but they think it's because people experience emotional stress and that affects the heart. Um, but that's the speculation. 
Um, and there's also excessive food intake, alcohol, long distance traveling, all that may um, cause cause it, and the you know stress of um, you know of everything. Yeah, and so. and some of this I think is like people who were kind of teed up to have a heart attack. It's like the next the next stressful thing that happens pushes them over the edge. It's not like they weren't going to have one and Christmas Eve caused it. It's more like that's like what. You know, that, that was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back, which is actually the same situation as the, uh, the day after or the day of daylight savings time. There's a higher in the U.S., there's a higher incidence of heart attacks and I think also strokes, but I'm not sure. I wonder, I wonder yeah, if this, so rec- I wonder if this carries over to the U.S. Maybe, uh, they recommend that people avoid unnecessary stress and take care of elderly relatives with the risk of health problems and avoid excessive eating. And <laughs> so at like not 9.58, you're like, Grandma, sit down. You take a load off. <laughs> you look you look tired and exhausted, Grandma. You need to lay down. <laughs> it's 10.01, you're good. Oh, hey, they talked about, I read this piece. Do you know this piece? They Okay, the last paragraph I think is a little random, but... Um, the Atlantic debunked the idea a few years ago that suicides increase around the winter holidays, and they linked to that article. There's so many things to debunk, Laura. Okay, number one, sugar does not cause hyperactivity. That's been debunked. Two, turkey does not cause drowsiness. That's been debunked. Three, suicides do not in- increase around winter holidays. So I feel like I feel like my whole life is a lie. I know, I know. I feel like nothing I knew is true. I know. Everything is wrong. I know. I think these things go so contrary to popular opinion that even if people hear them or read these articles, I don't I don't think most people will believe it anyway. I post the story about the sugar every Halloween, but no one ever argues with me about it, which makes me think um <clears throat> that no one else cares or that they just are are so far in denial that they're like I'm not even going to consider that. But hey, Data says what the data I mean, says. I understand what you're saying, but that does not mean that I'm not going to give my niece and nephew sugar and then send them back to my sister. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's just because I think that that's fun. <laughs> well, I think like I think like what they've said is more likely is that like you're giving them sugar at what tends to be an exciting moment anyway, or the sugar makes them emotional, like they get emotionally excited. You know, but it's like the sugar itself does not cause hyperactivity is the situation. So I don't know. Gotcha. I mean, I think so many parents would disagree with that. But hey, don't shoot the messenger. So yeah, those are the articles for this. So now that you've, you know, you're on your way to this doctorate, are you still keeping up with current events? Is there a current event that you think is impacting health news this week? Or are you just like so far in your academic tower now that you cannot be bothered? What's well, I'm up in my ivory tower. I've I've climbed up, but there was somebody in here, and I threw her out. She had really <laughs> long hair. Um, I think I think the most interesting thing that I saw over this past week is that um, the Supreme Court declined to take up a, a case that involved Planned Parenthood and whether or not uh, individuals who receive Medicare have the right to sue. Uh, the state um, for it, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh joined the uh, what is traditionally viewed as the more liberal side of the court and declined mm-hmm. to accept that as a case. I'm not sure if you're like super familiar with how like the Supreme Court works. Like, just because you have a case doesn't mean that the Supreme Court 
has to listen to it and they can decline to pick it up and just kick it back down to the lower court's decision and say like, that's where it'll stay. Um, so like with the, cause it's an appeal court, so not every appeal goes through. And I just, how like, do they I decide knew that? But like yeah. th- they vote on whether or not to accept the case. And if the majority agree to hear the case, then the case is heard. And if uh, they don't, then it's, then it's not heard. And it is the last appeal um, stands. So then is the, it, you know, ninth district, appeals yeah. court you know or whatever you know, that you always hear about or you know mm-hmm. so yeah they vote they decide so my impression is that they sometimes can they can deny something that they think is like not worth their time but they can also deny something where they want to wait for more cases to accumulate on the topic or something is that how it works like i was trying to think what yeah, are their reasons for not taking it they don't have to give a reason for it. They can just they can just decline. I mean, but what to... what do you think is the reason? <laughs> <laughs> I mean that they don't they don't think that it's a strong enough case or that they they don't think that there is a legitimate reason for an appeal for the appeal, mm. you know, like Yeah. um that they're, you know, that they found that the appeals court was proper, right and proper. Um, or maybe or, like it's know, it's late and and they're tired and they're just like you know what I made enough decisions this year let's just next year on this one no part of I mean no it wouldn't be next year like because it that that ends its journey like it um with it but <laughs> oh. there's there is a a limited amount of time in which to hear cases so it is sometimes it's viewed as not important enough or that the law is clear so they don't need to issue an opinion to clarify the law right to interpret oh, they're the like, law so like we did like this. the law is clear mm-hmm. yeah the mm-hmm. law is clear and it does not need because um you know a supreme court decision sets precedent and that is what's used to create other laws and how other states create other laws you know um for different things yeah. like that so um i think that it was uh significant and the fact that it was declined um and people you know had great concern about brett kavanaugh and planned parenthood and that was yeah he sided with uh chief justice roberts so interesting it's not going to be heard so we will not hear the decision all right back to the lower courts the supreme court has spoken we have spoken (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) thanks so much for listening everyone if you are enjoying the podcast, please rate, share, and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your media. Before we let you go, we'll say a special thank you to Evan Schaefer. Thanks, Evan. Who composed our theme song. You can listen to his music at soundcloud.com slash Evan Schaefer. You can also send us your questions, comments, and topic requests to hello at thebadpatient.com. Until next time, we are Bad Patient. Bad Patient.